Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome our guest moderator for this evening, CEO of Prolific Interactive, Bobby Imamian, and our special guest this evening, co-founder and CEO of Thrillist, Ben Lehrer, and Director of Product Development, Annie Tramatori. Alright, thanks everybody for coming. Uh, very excited to be here. We have a couple uh, pretty awesome people and, and a great company to hear their story um, and everything that they've gone through. So uh, without further ado, do you guys want to uh, start with some intros and tell us about yourselves and Thrillist? So I'm Annie and I run product at Thrillist Media Group, which is all of our brands that Ben will give you the backstory of here in a second. Um, so I'm just going to turn it over to him for that. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. For those of you who don't know about Thrillist, uh, we started about eight years ago. The original concept was to go and build a better city guide. And so I grew up reading City Search and uh, Zagat and sort of all that garbage and uh, found that those guys, while they did a really good job speaking to me in a voice, uh, or, or I'm sorry, speaking about things that were local and timely and actionable, they did a really bad job speaking to me in a voice that I trusted. And sort of my mother and I were supposed to read the same city guide and felt that there was a disconnect there. And uh, at the same time, I looked at the national men's magazines, the Maxims and the GQs and all that stuff and found that those guys had sort of a different problem, which was that I totally trusted the voice, but unfortunately didn't feel that the content was local or timely or actionable and, and thought that there was sort of a disconnect there and wanted to create local content that I trusted. And so uh, with my buddy from college, Adam, we went and started creating content uh, really inspired by a company called Daily Candy, which had done a really nice job building a brand for women in the space. And uh, on sort of nights and weekends, started writing about things that we thought were interesting or undiscovered or cool to do in the city. And every day we featured one business that we thought was really compelling and interesting. And very quickly we got some validation from the market that people actually cared about what we were doing um, in the form of people taking our recommendations and acting upon them. So you write about a restaurant, people go and make a reservation. You write about a clothing store, people buy stuff. And for us, that sort of signified trust. And on the back of that trust, we were able to get advertisers to come in and start paying us to be in front of these guys and sort of to jump forward a bunch. Uh, what worked in New York where we launched ultimately worked in a bunch of other markets. And over the course of three or four years, we rolled out to 10, then 15, then 20 markets around the country and built a nice business. And one day, funny little story, uh, CNN did a piece on Daily Candy and they called Daily Candy Thrillist for Girls. And that was like the best day, you know, like burned the office down and like, you know, Annie like destroyed something. And uh, we were so happy, but it also sort of made us recognize that we had achieved our original goal and we needed to figure out what we wanted to be when we grew up. And, and on the back of that, we, uh, got really lucky and one day I was reading Thrillist and I saw an ad for a company I was previously unfamiliar with called Jack Threads, which uh, was an e-commerce site selling clothing and accessories from brands that I had never heard of aside from reading about them editorially on Thrillist. And it was that sort of aha moment where the demand that we had been creating on Thrillist had been fulfilled by the supply that Jack Threads was selling and it was a really sort of interesting moment. and. Uh, I went, I got on a plane, I went to Columbus, Ohio, and I met Jason, who was the founder of Jack Threads, who's now one of our business partners, and said, uh, how do you have money to advertise with us? And, and sort of ultimately he, 
informed me that we had covered Jack Threads editorially and that the people who he had acquired through that editorial ultimately were the highest value guys and the biggest buyers and the biggest shares that Jack Threads had, sort of validating the quality of our audience and the fact that they took our recommendations to heart. And so fast forward again, uh, we partnered with Jack Threads and ultimately acquired Jack Threads and over the last three or four years have tried to build what we think of as sort of like the next media model, one where we have uh, a content brand that sits at the forefront, uh, sort of creating content that guys care about, that they trust, that ultimately gives them serviceable, actionable information, rather than just entertaining and amusing them, actually gives them information they can use that drives purchasing. And we've built a commerce platform on the back end where we're actually able to fulfill the demand that we create. And uh, I think an, a really easy, simple way to think about it is if if GQ owned J Crew, what would that look like? And we're now thinking about sort of beyond that, what happens if we can build a series of brands, not just one lifestyle brand that speaks to all guys, but you know, I get one friend might give me great restaurant advice, another friend might give me good clothing advice, another friend might give me good gadget advice, another friend might give me good girl advice, and I think we're thinking that we can build out consumer brands in each of these areas with voices that have trust in these areas that give actionable, useful information that guys can use to make purchasing decisions, and on the back of that, fulfill that through our commerce platform. And so that's sort of what the Thrillist Media Group is, and the first additional brand we've launched is called the Crosby Press, which is a uh, publication focused on the intersection of music and fashion, and soon we'll be rolling out another little treat in a new category that I can't quite say yet, but uh, that's sort of the big picture. And I think ultimately, you know, from, from a 40,000 foot view, the, the goal here is to build a media company that doesn't just make money by renting the relationship that we have to advertisers, but actually sells products and, and monetizes the user directly and ultimately builds, I think, a more sustainable business and actually allows us to invest more into a great product uh, for our guys. So content and commerce is actually a really interesting topic, right? So you guys have the ability to promote the users. User acquisition is always challenging. Um, is there any downside to mixing that? And, you know, how do you manage that, that fine line? Yeah, you know, I think ultimately when you're dealing with content and commerce together, you have to just be really careful about where it meets. And so for us, we Jack Threads is a perfect example. Um, half of our users on Jack Threads actually are there because they need to buy that minute. They, they come on our site, they see our daily deals, and they're buying right now. Um, the other half are actually just kind of looking to us for lifestyle guidance. They're browsing, they're reading, um, and reading isn't even something that we offer currently on Jack Threads. So the goal when we start interjecting content into a property like Jack Threads is to be targeting that guy, not the guy who's trying to make that immediate purchase. So kind of looking at user behavior, segmenting out those who are looking for that lifestyle experience, and really driving stuff to meet their needs. And I think there's a the sort of the issue of trust is something that often comes into play around content and commerce, which is, how can you be a content site and have trust if at the end of the day you're selling products to these people? And uh, it's a great question and something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, but ultimately what we've found is the quality of the product will speak for itself. And if we're going and shilling crappy products, people aren't gonna buy them. Like the audience will self, like the product will self-correct because the audience won't respond well and the data will do the talking. And so we, we're very transparent about when we're recommending a product that we're selling. But at the end of the day, the behaviors that our audience show 
the, the behaviors basically show us that if the quality is right, it's totally cool to do it as long as we're transparent. And if the quality isn't, the guys will police us and ultimately make our business terrible. And are you able to cross, uh, so let's say you have data from Jackthreads, right? And, and someone's on Thrillist reading something. Can you access their information and know exactly who that person is, what their behaviors are, so you can cross promote there? Yeah, I mean, look, we do a lot of, we have a lot of technologies that we're not currently leveraging across platform right now. Right now, we're kind of just laying the groundwork and, and seeing what we can do with that information. Um, I will say that a, a perfect example of a way that we're using the, the different properties to apply our learnings across the other properties is we're kind of developing the product in a similar way across all the brands. So, you know, as we really optimize the Jackthreads navigation and learn exactly how users are behaving there, we're taking that same stylistic information and applying it to Thrillist the Crosby Press so that when we're learning something in one place, we're then porting it over to the other properties as well. Very cool. So let's talk about uh, product a little bit more. Um, can you give us a rundown on, you know, what is what transformation has uh, Thrillist and, and Jackthreads and all these properties from a technology perspective, what kind of shift has, has happened throughout the years? Well, that's a really, really huge question. Um, but um, to say so simply, um, we didn't really love where the product was a few years ago. It was kind of... That is an understatement. <laughs> trying to be nice, Ben. <laughs> um, the product was kind of something that was put together kind of as an afterthought of the content, um, not as what's going to showcase the content. So it was like, oh, we need to make an app, and you just made something without really thinking of the goal of that. Um, and also, you know, it was at a, a part where mobile wasn't really the forefront of everyone's of everyone's mind and so this whole idea of mobile first was something that ev you hear everyone saying it um, not a lot of people are actually doing it I think we're finally doing it we weren't we used to say what looks great on desktop okay cool let's cram it onto a mobile screen and make it look a little bit better uh, make a button a little bigger make the font a little larger um, but that's not really what makes a good mobile experience what makes a good mobile experience is literally doing it first um, and that in turn turns out to help your desktop experience too so I think slowly as we started embracing that strategy, we started redoing these apps one at a time with that in mind. And as a result, we ended up getting really clean products that focused on the core functionality of that specific product. So Jackthreads is commerce, keep it commerce. Let the user get in, let them buy, don't convolute their experience with anything else. And, and really just focus on keeping that central thing precious within that app. So Thrillist, same thing. If we're, if we're trying to make a really awesome local app, let's make it really local. Let's make you be able to find stuff right around you. And let's not try to cram in every type of content, silly cat gifts that we may be featuring on the neat, like the national side. So I think it's like that functionality really helped us go from a bunch of apps that were kind of trying to be jack of all trades to having really strong pillars that were doing exactly what they needed to do. And how do, you, how do you design and develop for different screen sizes, right? There's tablet, there's mobile. How does that all kind of uh, come into play there? Yeah, so I think ultimately, you know, keeping in mind the core requirements that you're working with is always important with mobile, but iPad obviously gives you a little more real estate so you can have a little bit more fun with it. Um, Regardless, though, the difference from desktop is there are features that might be cool, like wow factor items. You know, if, you, if anyone's familiar with Jackthreads, the sale pages have really beautiful, great imagery across the top, but data tells us that's not really something that makes the sell. So it takes up really, really precious real estate in an app. So why would you flood an app with that 
when you really need that space to show all the product and all the information that's crucial to the buy. So the, le the smaller amount of real estate you're working with, the more particular you have to be about what you put in there as far as like whiz-bang features. It's not really the, the features that really awe, it's, it's the utility. But I, I think what you said that was really important though is referencing the data. Yeah. And I think that that's something that, you know, a Annie has frankly been uh, pushing harder than anybody and, and been one of the reasons that we've actually sort of embraced this, but the idea that when we design, we're not just designing based on what we think looks nice, but we understand that when we roll a product, it needs to be incredibly simple, incredibly intuitive, incredibly well-tagged, and that we need to think of it as just a starting point, and that we really need to let the data do the talking. We need to see how people are behaving, see how people are using the products on different devices, and then change the experience and optimize around sort of driving the key, you know, the key actions that we're looking to achieve. And I think that uh, that sort of focus on data and that understanding of how important it is is something that came from commerce. And as a media business, we didn't have an appreciation for data. We were, it's sort of a lot of art and a lot less science. And commerce businesses traditionally have a lot of science, it's like all the math of sort of the, you know, managing your margin, but a little bit less art. And it's sort of most e-commerce experiences are flat stores. And for us, we've done a pretty good job marrying, sort of taking the, the data usage from commerce and applying it to making our content smarter. And at the same time, taking sort of the emotional connection that a media company is usually able to generate and applying that to commerce so that we're able to get people to buy things that they didn't even think that they wanted, sort of inspire, uh, inspire commerce rather than just make it cheaper, faster, easier than buying offline. And, and on top of that, so a lot of uh, what you guys have done has been based on advertisements. Uh, for Jack Threads, obviously you're selling um, apparel and things like that, but what, are, what has been the key to monetizing mobile on top of you know, selling your e-commerce apparel too? Because a lot of people haven't figured that out, or they're, they're asking that question. So are we. Um, you know, I think monetizing mobile, we've been very lucky that, uh, again, sort of with, with Andy's leadership, we've leaned into mobile uh, in a major, major way. And we don't just say it, but we actually do it. And so almost 50% of our sales now on the commerce side come through mobile devices. About 40% of the total business revenue actually comes directly through the iPhone specifically. Um, really exciting sort of I think way ahead of most of the market there um, on the advertising side it's uh, it's a little bit tougher um, you know right now the one advantage that I think we have is that people really aren't coming to us as much for format like ad format as they are for audience and so we're reaching a young affluent sort of you know well-educated guy who is generally very elusive to advertisers particularly outside of, you know, sort of sports. Um, and we're reaching them in a really sort of interesting context where we're actually helping them make decisions. And so advertisers see the value in the relationship that we have. And so it's a little bit, I think advertisers think less about working with us in the context of email versus web versus social versus video versus mobile and more, we want these guys and we want them however you've got them. Um, that being said, we're getting them more and more and more on mobile, whether that means our emails being read on mobile, that we're, whether that means our sort of mobile web experience or native app experience. And so we need to figure out how we can uh, distribute 
advertising into those environments and make them as engaging, as sticky as on other devices. And so that has to do with the right design, that has to do with the right technology, the right targeting, and uh, ultimately a lot of trial and error and a lot of creativity. And so we're, you know, we're continuing to innovate there. We certainly don't have all the answers, but I do think that we have the right focus and the right commitment so that we're going to remain ahead of the market. Oh, I was just going to add to that that from a product standpoint, especially on mobile, and especially when you're when you're getting as focused as commerce apps like Jackthreads, it's really about also making that experience that's an ad experience feel really native, which is another buzzword that we hear all around the industry right now. But it really holds true that if you're going to put advertisement into something like that that's so crucial to your business, you really have to make it ingrained. And I know you know you know a little bit about it from our Jack Styler activation, where we're actually making it so it's a service to the user. We're helping them find really awesome some hand-picked selections while pairing that with an advertisement. So you're actually in turn getting a service out of the advertisement instead of just getting plastered with some kind of messaging. And who are some of the, so who are some of the advertisers that get involved in that, for example? Um, well, we both know, but uh, <laughs> so we, I'll give an example. Um, so one thing that Annie was just referencing is, a, is a, something that we've done with Gillette for the last few years, which is called uh, the Jack Styler, and actually, uh, we're moving so fast that we can't do all the development ourselves. And so while we have 40 uh, in-house people on sort of the product and dev team, um, this fine gentleman and his, uh, and his firm, Prolific, have actually, uh, we work with them a ton and they do lots of um, outsource development for us on projects that uh, are either sort of, that come up quickly and that we need to slot in or projects that we think they actually have more experience building, and, and so we've uh, we've worked with them. And Jack Style is one of those products. And like any referenced, it's an it's a game that's actually an advertisement. But um, within our app, people uh, guys would fill in information about the sort of the of the occasion that they're shopping for, and they were, there was a few questions that they would ask, and then we would style them. And this was for a brand advertising campaign for the Gillette uh, Styler, which is a uh, a razor for not just for like a clean shave, but for making cool, cool good looking beards, beards. Uh, like you have. You, you, you have a great beard. Beautiful beard over there Thank too. Thank you. Um, and so we, uh, <laughs> we uh, find that like that kind of an ad, for example, and, and granted, you know, click through is like really stupid metric, but that's an ad that, you know, four or 5% of the people who visit the page that that ad is on ultimately interact with. And we actually drove, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars of transactions through the recommendations that that advertisement generated. And so for us, um, that was a really uh, successful example where we were able to integrate a brand in a way that guys didn't consider to be a shill, but actually totally engaged with. And on the back end, we were able to integrate um, you know, more placements for Gillette by actually doing sampling in the box when people were purchasing and things of that nature. And so we were able to sort of tie online and offline or content and commerce together. And uh, so, you know, I mean, for us, the way that we think about working with an advertiser sort of high level is we have really interesting insights into our guys because we don't just understand their media consumption habits, but we actually also understand their purchasing habits because we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of their credit card numbers and we have uh, their home addresses and so we understand a really interesting sort of data set about our guys on the back of that we're able to go and leverage those insights to figure out how we can solve a problem for a client what we then do is come up with 
an idea. And so for Gillette, it was the Jack Styler. For Doritos right now, we're doing something where we uh, have gone out and asked our audience to come up with, their, their campaign is all about being bold, to come up with bold designs for t-shirts um, inspired by Doritos. And we've, we're getting hundreds and hundreds of amazing designs, like shirts that I want to own with Doritos on them. Un like, yeah, really, really cool. Really, really cool, thoughtful, creative stuff. And, and we're then going to pick winners. The audience, our audience will vote and ultimately we'll sell this stuff on Jack Threads. And it's, uh, it's engaging and it's fun. And uh, it's an example of sort of the big idea. And then we take that content that we create in partnership and we distribute it. And so we can distribute it across one audience. So we can, we can sort of tell the Jack Threads guys about it. Or we can distribute it across Thrillist and Crosby Press and across everything that we do, giving an advertiser the opportunity to get more scale within the audience. Very cool. That's another example of content and commerce kind of coming together. Um, how about international? I mean, you guys have been growing so quickly. I'm sure there's been a lot of, of learning um, in, in the international markets. What does that look like, and, and how have you been able to adapt? Well, <laughs> okay. So all of our properties are kind of taking their own forays into the international market right now. Um, Thrillist, we just announced launching an amazing new travel vertical. Um, some of the same type of content we've already been writing locally uh, that is really beneficial if you're a traveler too. So we actually plan on being in something crazy like 64 cities in the next couple of months. Taking over the world? No, no, no. By the end of next year. Okay, I'm exaggerating we'll a little bit. We'll go from 21 but... to more than 65 cities by the end of next year, but we're super focused on international rollout at yeah. Thrillist. Um, and then for the commerce side of things, it, it's a little bit more tricky because it's not just the content. It's really making sure the user experience is optimized because it's really easy to, say, turn an app on in every international app store. But what does that mean for that user? They're going to get an app in a language they don't understand, a currency that they, they don't even know, and they're going to pay thousands of dollars in shipping that they had no idea they were going to pay. So, um, you know, when we started thinking about launching internationally for Jackthreads, we had to be very strategic about where we started. So we definitely picked English-speaking companies first just because we already have a product in that language. Um, and, you know, kind of working around all of the weird little shipping nuances to make it something that our users can get access to and very affordably without getting bit on the other side of it. So we've launched in the UK, Canada, and Australia so far. And we're finding some pretty interesting things. For example, in Australia, the users are buying three times as much, basically, per order. Um, so there's funny little things that you notice along the way and it allows you to kind of tailor the experience to that. But I would say it's really important that when you're going international to just make sure you're not losing sight of the actual user experience on the other side of it. And then how do you culturally, right? Uh, how do you adjust? Because each individual is in, in different cultures are going to be different. So how do you cater to them? I would say so far the biggest thing that we've faced is um, as far as like marketing the other countries is more of the seasonality issue than necessarily the guy. Like I feel like we know our guy pretty well in what they're looking for. Our users like our content, they're looking at our site for what we provide, but you know, it's summer one place, it's winter another. We might be selling jackets like crazy in New York, but we're definitely not in Australia. So just making sure that we have those experiences supported as well and they can find what they want really easily. And then are you seeing similar purchasing behaviors? I know you, you mentioned Australia is pretty high, yep. um, but how about, how about other countries? So far, Canada and UK are pretty similar to what we're seeing in the States. Um, it's really Australia that, that kind of threw us through a loop when we saw that, that's, that fact. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when we start launching into every other country we're planning on launching into. 
Very cool. Um, so before we turn it over to the audience, um, would love to hear, Ben, from you, kind of what's, what's in the works for the future of, of Thrillist Media Group and, and Jack Threads and all the properties? Yeah. Um, so, a lot. Uh, you know, again, sorry, and I alluded to it at the beginning, I think for us the, the big focus is going to be on, uh, on really deepening the relationship that we have with our guys. And, and I think we sort of came to the realization that, you know, the days of sort of like building one brand that sort of acts as like a men's portal is, is just not realistic anymore. And to think that Thrillist is going to be all things to all guys is, a, is sort of a silly uh, proposition. And so... Um, we're really focused on recognizing what the strengths and what the uh, sort of brand permissions of Thrillist are, and we're going deeper and deeper and deeper and really, you know, setting ourselves up to be the trusted resource to help guys figure out how to spend their time and their money around sort of the lifestyle of food, drink, and travel, and that means you know, like Annie said, the sort of going deeper into travel content, it means local content in more than 65 markets around the world. It means a totally re-imagined uh, mobile experience, uh, specifically iOS experience that um, is, is coming on the horizon. Um, at Thrillist, it then means going and taking those same principles of sort of service, um, but also fun, social, top of the funnel, sort of crazy content that generates lots of sharing and lots of new audience um, as well um, across each of the properties. And so at Thrillist, you know, being able to roll up local content into very big shareable national franchises that are backed by real substantive content. So very recently we rolled something out this week called the 33 best pizzas in America. Everyone's read thousands of stupid big lists their whole lives, um, in particular travel lists, but I think we have a different kind of credibility because we're able to go and cover. We, we actually have local people on the ground in countries, in cities all over the country. We've eaten these pizzas, we've been to these places, we have the photography to back it up. And so we see this content performing incredibly well sort of at the top of the funnel. And I think we're gonna take that same service at the bottom, sort of you know really fun, big shareable stuff at the top strategy and apply that to the Crosby Press around uh, around sort of music and fashion as verticals. Again, we have more sort of vertical expansion that we're working on. Um, all that's going to be powered by one infrastructure. So um, sort of one data management platform, one uh, user system, one technological backend and CMS, one um, advertising sales team and sort of sales marketing team coming up with big concepts that go and serve each of these different properties. And then on the back with commerce, we're gonna go and leverage the infrastructure that we've built there, our technology stack, our data management again, our user system again, our image processing again, as well as our customer service call center, our fulfillment infrastructure, and of course, most importantly, I would say our merchandising infrastructure uh, to then go and serve these audiences with great uh, commerce on the back. And I think ultimately, you know, if you think about today, the business looking a little bit like if GQ owned J. Crew, I think in the long term you think about if, and it, again, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of sort of hyperbole, but like it's what does it look like if Condé Nast owns Federated or some big commerce conglomerate? How do you look at vertical expansion in both areas? 
but not do it in such a way where you ultimately lose your core user by going and spreading yourself too thin and trying to be all things to all people, but instead conti continuing to build out pockets of products that are awesome, that have tons of trust, that have high advertiser demand, really deep engagement, and ultimately can bring people down the funnel to buy. And so that's sort of the, the big picture. And you know, when you think about what, what, why, why I sort of get out of bed and why I think a lot of us do is it's not, I think we're building a platform here, one that doesn't just have to be for guys, but one that can actually go and power the creation of brands um, on either the content or the commerce side. And so that's really what we're excited about. And you know, we continue to lean into private label. And so at Jack Threads right now, uh, we have four brands that we've built completely from scratch, clothing lines that we came up with based on looking at the insights of our audience. And we've built these brands and we've made them, uh, they're some of our best selling brands, leaning more into that where we don't just buy merchandise for the commerce businesses, but where we actually build it. And at the end of the, end of the day, sort of, you know, just like delight our guys by really understanding them and by giving them what they want. And uh, we're, we're having a lot of fun right now. <laughs> well, I'll ask you a quick question while, while Benjolinus thinks of one. Um, so you work with a bunch of clients, obviously. Uh, how do you think that what we're doing is, is better and different? This is a trick question. Wow, I'm on the spot here. Um, well, I think I think you know, going back to what you guys are saying, content and commerce, you're you're bringing the two together, and you're able to roll out these new brands, which is really interesting, um, and you're able to do it very quickly and provide a lot of value to customers. Um, it was also really cool to hear the way you guys are thinking about user demand in general. So that drives a lot of your products. Um, and your decisions that you're making along the way, which uh, which has proven to work out pretty well, obviously. Um, so it's 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 exciting to see what you guys are going to do in the future with uh, with a lot of these new brands, and then um, use that platform to kind of extend even uh, new places. So, so, is there anybody better than Annie that you work with at any other companies? Ah, let's see. No, no, oh. I think Annie's the best. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Cool. Well, if there's no more, any questions? Hi. I was wondering if you guys have ever done like a pop-up store or created a physical space in which is really representative of the brand, and if you ever wanted to get into brick and mortar completely. Totally great question, and we actually should have mentioned that. So offline's been a really big part of our DNA for a long time. Uh, we really, since day one, have always prided ourselves on uh, being really good at taking sort of the, the lifestyle and the brand that we've built online and, and bringing it to life. And uh, because Thrill has started as a primarily local business, we always had local communities. So we were sort of punched above our weight and were really good at getting people out uh, to experiences even when we were tiny. But uh, at this point we throw sort of 50 to 75 events a year. Um, we've done very select events that do have had a commerce component to them. Uh, I think we are leaning in hard to doing more of those and to thinking about not just taking Thrillist offline, but having all of our brands have offline components that we, uh, that we continue to lean into. Um, as far as the brick and mortar question is concerned, uh, it's definitely really interesting. Uh, you know, right around the corner from here, my boys from Warby Parker just opened up a store. They've done really spectacularly with that. We've seen, you know, lots of, uh, 
digital first e-commerce businesses go offline and have a lot of success. And so I think we, uh, we're going to watch closely and see. Um, right now, we just see so much growth online. We see so much more mobile growth. We see so much international growth, so much vertical growth that I, I, I'm concerned about distracting ourselves and going and leaning into something that feels really cool but may not actually be as lucrative a business right now. So I think we're sort of tiptoeing into it and, and uh, I think we will get there, but it's not on the short list. Hi there. My, my question is about, you, you were talking earlier about the, um, the mobile apps and the, the percentages of people who are using the iPhone specifically um, and your seamless you know, interaction with iOS. Is that really by design or is it, did it just kind of evolve that way? as opposed to maybe the Android market? Um, well, I think that Apple provides really awesome solutions to designing that make it really enjoyable to develop really clean user interfaces. Um, traditionally, the Android market hasn't been blessed with that. Um, some of the device fragmentation makes it a little bit harder, so it's not usually the obvious first choice. Um, aside from that also, as we mentioned, we're really data-driven, so we see our numbers, how many people are using, and that's kind of how we choose which product we really have to develop next. So when we see that there's such a strong user base in the iPhone industry, or industry, in the iPhone area of the world, um, we obviously decide that that's, that's the next move instead of prioritizing something like Android where we're not seeing such affinity amongst our users. But to be perfectly honest, we, you know, this has been a surprise. I mean, when you look at sort of just the business this year, we've had to reforecast the business multiple times up because of how well we've done, and a lot of that overperformance came from mobile, and yeah. specifically iOS. And so we, uh, you know, it's by design that people really dig it, but it's been surprising that uh, the numbers have sort of been as astounding as, as they have been. Why don't we give a, a really warm round of applause to our guests, and uh, thank you, Ben and Andy, again, for coming in, and Bobby, of course. <laughs> <laughs>